Well, good morning. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, that's where uh, we find ourselves this morning. We're going uh, verse by verse through uh, the book of Matthew, and so we're in chapter 17, but I'm going to scooch back and attach verse 28 of chapter 16 on there because I believe it makes a little more sense. Not that the old dudes who put this together uh, or put the chapter markers were wrong, but I just disagree a little bit. So, Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, and we'll read um, into 17 a little bit. This is what God's Word says. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked Him, Then why do scribes say that first Elijah must come? And He answered, Elijah does come, and He'll restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize Him, but did to Him whatever they pleased. And so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is God's Word. Let me just pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. It is the power of salvation. It is what You've given us, Lord, that possesses the power to change us from the inside out. I pray that this morning, Father, You move me out of the way. The Holy Spirit, You will speak the words You need to speak, words of conviction or words of comfort. Teach us through Your Word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Alright, so this will be a common theme that I, I hit very often, and that is this, that Jesus Christ is uh, our means, I'm sorry, our motivation, our means, and our model for living and for dying. Our motivation, the reason why, the means, the power by which we can, and the model, like the aim, path we're supposed to walk for both living and for dying. And as we saw last week, Professing the truth is, is much easier than walking it. We saw this through Peter. And that truth, the idea of like, man, it's easy to, to proclaim, it's easy to confess, or easier, I should say, is no more evident than if you just kind of look at the 12 disciples that Jesus called first. These guys uh, walked with Jesus right next to Him, served with Him, ministered with Him for three full years. And yet, throughout it, they had strange questions. They had 
rash words like we saw Peter. They made foolish decisions. They made it very clear that these guys didn't have it all together, that they were redeemed works in progress, that they had their faults and their flaws and their quirks. If you ever read about the Sons of Thunder, right? Names of John. These are guys whom, when Jesus was rejected at a city, they went up to Jesus and were like, hey, you want us to call fire down on these guys? Because we will, Jesus. He's like, dude, chill out, right? So these guys are normal. They're quirky. They're strange. At times you're like, seriously? Don't you get it? They didn't understand all the time. They didn't listen all the time to every word Jesus said. They didn't remember every promise that he made until he was resurrected. He's like, hello, I told you this. They didn't obey every command that he gave. And in Matthew chapter 16, he admonishes in that chapter, it's a really interesting chapter, he admonishes his best disciples, right? He's got the 12 around him. The chapter starts by him admonishing them having little faith, which we'll talk a lot about next week. Because you guys have little faith. And then he ends chapter 16 by accusing one of his best friends of acting like Satan. So these are the disciples. But the thing about these disciples is that despite all the confusing things Jesus said, and he did say some confusing things from their Jewish perspective, like he just wasn't lining up and they didn't understand, and all the hard things he said, because, you know, being called Satan is pretty direct, pretty hard, right? Well, all the things he said that were confusing and hard, one thing they never stopped doing, they never stopped keeping their eyes on Jesus. They may have screwed up, they may have misunderstood, but they're, okay, Lord, okay, yeah, I screwed up, okay. And they kept their eyes on Jesus. I believe the eyes set on Jesus is what changes foolish men into faithful martyrs. That's what these guys all were. They, they were fools, freaks, weirdos screw-ups, but they all died in the name of Jesus. They all died for their faith. They went from foolish guys to faithful martyrs. And I continue to go back to a, I think 2 Corinthians might be my favorite book in the Bible, and I continue to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul reminded us that, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, That's key. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, that being Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. To keep our eyes on Jesus, we're changed. We're transformed. It's mysterious. It's miraculous. But as we follow Jesus, it's pretty clear if you follow Him for any length of time and if you read the New Testament, you're going to encounter some really difficult things. Some costly things. Even Jesus' words are going to challenge, if you actually read them, right? They're going to challenge your intellect like that just doesn't make sense. They are going to offend your emotions at some level. They're going to conflict with your experiences and what is going on in your family or culture like this. Wow. There will be times when our faith fails. There will be times when we are captivated by sin. There will be times when we declare really rash, dumb things like Peter did and are wrong. All disciples experience this. All disciples will experience this at some time. It doesn't surprise Jesus, even if it maybe 
grieves him. But he is committed to completing the work that he began in us. Despite all of that, rash words, confusing questions, unfaithfulness, pursuing sin, he is committed to completing the work that he began in us. And so as we follow Jesus, we will be shaped not only by this kind of hardship, we'll actually be shaped by what I'm going to call moments of grace. And what we're going to read today is one of those. Because we just came out of chapter 16 with hard words, confusing words, being called Satan, just Peter like, you know, royally screwing up. Questioning whether he should suffer. He's like, you're going to suffer, dude. We're all going to suffer. But then Jesus gives this moment of grace. And what's a moment of grace? It's those times in our lives when God's grace is just really tangible. Like when His realness is just palpable, when His presence is is just overwhelming and and inexplicable, but you know the Lord is in it. That's not a daily occurrence, but they're those moments that I think become monuments in our life. I remember when the Lord showed up here. I remember when I felt the Lord present with me in this horrible situation. I remember when God just surprised me and blessed me in ways it was only explained by Him. It's those moments that I believe become monuments and they're kind of the the pillars that we hold on to, especially when the whole world around us begins to kind of crash. We can't understand things. We become doubt-filled. And those pillars, those monuments, those moments that we have, we go back to, okay, I know who Jesus is. And I know what He's done. I know He's true. I know He's here. I know He's good. I know He's gracious. I know He's great. Okay. You hold on to those. And this is one of those moments because, as I said, all these disciples are going to die. They're all going to face persecution. They're all going to be challenged. And this is, I believe, one of the moments, if not the moment, that Peter went back to. That Peter used, actually, in his own letters to encourage those people who were being killed for their faith. In chapter 17, you have Peter, James, and John, the only three guys that get to experience this moment. And I believe this is one of the most miraculous things that happens in Scripture. It only happens one time. After Jesus has blessed Peter for rightly identifying him as king, he remember, he declared that his kingdom was going to be established through his execution. And Peter freaked out. And then he goes, get behind me, Satan. All my disciples who follow me, they're going to have to deny themselves. They're going to have to take up their cross. Have to... So what are the disciples thinking at that point? Oh my gosh, like that's really dark. That's what, that's what it means? We're just, going to, we're just going to die? Now again, they didn't hear the resurrection part. I don't think they fully understood what that meant, and if they had heard it. But now Jesus is going to come through after declaring what he's going to do, which is die. He now is going to reveal who he is. And if you get nothing else from today's sermon, I want you to remember this. That we may and probably will not understand everything God's doing. Even if he directly told you. Sometimes we imagine like if the Lord came down and gave me spoke to me through shaft of light, I'd be like, okay, it makes sense. It wouldn't. Right? It just wouldn't. 
So we're not going to understand everything God is doing, but I believe he has revealed, as we'll see here, more than enough about himself in Christ that we can trust the one who's doing it. That's where he wants you. He doesn't need us, nor want us, nor expect us to understand everything that's going on. But he does expect and hope and want us to trust him. That he's doing it, that he's in control, that he is good, that he is great, that he is great. He's, he, that's what he wants us. And that's why I believe he's actually revealing this to these disciples. So if you look at verse, uh, the first couple of verses of 17 there, it says, After six days, Peter, James, and John were led up to a mountain. People argue what mountain it was. Doesn't matter. It's a mountain. High mountain. Okay? And both Matthew and Mark make the point to say, after six days which seems kind of odd, very specific. Luke says about eight days, which is just a Greek way of saying about a week. So they all are, are talking, specifically Mark and Matthew, about six days. And more than likely, the number alludes to the experience of Moses when he came out of Egypt and he led Israel to the base of Mount Sinai, and then God called him up to the mountain to receive the law. Here's what he said in Exodus 24, verse 15. It says, And Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud, sound familiar, covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. Then it says, On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So Moses goes up the mountain and he sits in there in the glory of the Lord, which is probably terrifying because it's like a cloud, thunder, lightning, all these things, and he sits there for six days not hearing anything from God. And on the seventh day, God speaks. This situation probably also alludes to the prophet Elijah's experience. And that's why we probably see Moses and Elijah in here. On the same mountain, when he had been hunted by Ahab and Jezebel in particular. He ran, and he went up to this mountain with God. And God met him there and spoke to him after several days. In the Gospel of Luke, this same story indicates that Jesus took them up, Peter, James, and John, up to the mountain to pray. That was his intent. And what we understand that to mean is that he was taking them up there to commune with God. To meet God in a special way. Now, since the days of creation, the seven days of creation, six days have always been understood to mean um, the amount of time required for um, preparations for a holy event. And... Friends and I um, have always, I shouldn't always, uh, friends in ministry have kind of used the phrase, hey, did you go to the mountain? We talk about that. Did you go to the mountain? Before we preach or in preparation for preaching, for teaching, make sure you go to the mountain. Right? Make sure you go and, and commune with God. It's a really simple way to remind ourselves how important it is to prepare to communicate God's Word or teach or serve whatever happens to be. And not only that, it's an it's a act of preparation, but it's also a, an act of expectation. As we, quote, go to the mountain in prayer, we commune with God. Prayer is a, a special experience to be.
be and dwell in the presence of God in a way that's unique. It's different than driving a car, right? It's different than, than doing many things. When we stop and pray, we are, we are inviting, or perhaps God is inviting us into his presence to commune with the God of the universe. But in a sense, I believe that, that we collectively, right? Peter, James, and John, a community, go to the mountain together when we come here. I believe that the presence of God uniquely, not exclusively, uniquely dwells in the gathering of His people. That this experience as we come together here is a unique experience where we get to dwell in the presence of the Spirit differently than we'll be at home watching the football game. Not to say the Spirit's not there. Not to say the Spirit doesn't want the Hawks to win. Praise God. It's to say that when we gather here, there's something unique going on. Now, that truth, if, if, if we believe that truth, which I do, begs a couple questions. One is, how do we really prepare to meet Jesus on Sunday? There's a lot of preparations for Sunday to take place, right? A lot of things that just have to occur from set up at the church to just getting your family out the door. But how do we really prepare to meet Jesus? And if we are preparing, like, what are we expecting? What are we expecting as we gather here? At any point, let me check this, at any point during the six days prior to today, do we look forward to communing with God and His people? I mean, do we even have that thought. Do we think to ourselves, I'm looking forward to Sunday to the Hawks game, right? Which we do. But no Hawks game or nothing aside, like do you ever go, man, I cannot wait to get together and be in the presence of God's people. I can't wait to sing with God's people. I can't wait to hear God's word proclaimed. Do we think like that? And why not? If we don't. Are we Basically, building into our relationship with Jesus during the week so that our big date on Sunday is meaningful. Right? Am I thinking about Jesus? Am I talking with Jesus? And I go, dude, we're having a date on Sunday. It's going to be rocking. Can't wait to meet and see you, Jesus. And I know for some guys, like, that's weird. Like, this feels, that's freaky. But we have a relationship with a person. Do we understand that? That Jesus is a person? There are many things I think that we have come to expect from our Sunday date with Jesus. Not all good. And many of us come expecting, I hope there's good music. I hope the sermon teaches me something. I can't wait to see so-and-so. Do we, and this is, between you and the Lord, right? And I've asked myself these questions. Just because I'm the pastor, don't, don't think that I always come here with the greatest attitude. I have to check my own side. I have to make sure I'm like going to the mountain expecting what I should be expecting. Right? Are, are we coming here expecting to see Jesus or just see a good show? Are we, are we coming to the mountain, gathering before the Lord to hear from Jesus or hear from Sam? Because you can dismiss Sam or Mara. You can dismiss any guy that's preaching. 
Are we coming to actually hear from Jesus and, and, and believe that his word's going to come through in this mess of words I have? Are we coming to the mountain to experience Jesus, or are we coming to the mountain to experience, like, tingles, right? Because that shows you how you evaluate your Sunday morning experience. If you're coming for show and not to meet Jesus, then you're going to evaluate whether it was good or bad based off how good the show was. Man, music was okay this Sunday. I've been there. We're all there. Or the sermon, right? Man, the sermon was so, so, like... Well, if you're coming to hear Sam, I understand, right? But if you're coming to hear Jesus, you know what? More often than not, I have my points on my sermon. He's going to speak to you that's not one of my points. And I may make a joke or say something. I, I, there's been times where I've said, like, you know, like there's 50, blah, 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 say something. The guy's like, I can't believe you used that number. Because that number just was like, really? I just randomly threw that out there. Are we coming to hear Jesus say something or are we coming to hear Sam? Because I guarantee you, you can evaluate that, right? Or tingles, right? You know, I just didn't feel it today. I just, I've had people come to our church, and, and it was really years ago, Damascus Road, and they're like, you know, I just, just didn't feel the Spirit moving. Like, what does that even mean? And what do you do if someone else that says, well, I did. Now where are we, right? It's just so individualistic. As we come to the mountain, are we, are we thinking about it and what are we expecting to experience? Because I begin oftentimes if I get the opportunity to start the service today, remember why we're here. We're here gathering before the throne of the King to worship Him and to proclaim His glories, not just to be filled up, right? Filled and fed. We're here to worship Him. And so they are prepared for six days. Curious what happens during those six days. But I think as we come, there's some things we should expect. Okay, I'm just going to lay out the things I think we should expect as we come to, to the Lord. The first thing I believe we should expect, and from this passage we see this, we should expect to see and adore Jesus. We should expect to see and adore Jesus. John 17 is a lengthy prayer, the longest prayer Jesus prayed in in verse 5, he said this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so, atop the mountain, right? Peter, James, and John have seen Jesus do miracles, but he's just a guy. He's flesh and bone. They've seen him do amazing things, and they know he's special, but he still looks like a man. That's why they think he's going to be this earthly king. And yet, on verse 2 and 3, he says, in a moment, he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, right? Do you remember that scene with the resurrected Gandalf, right? Lord of the Rings, and they're like walking through the woods. Hey, it's really dark. Ah! Like, it's just bright. That's what it was like. Where they're just like, what? The snarf is go. Who is, who is that? We're going to die. Like, that was pretty much their reaction. So in a moment, Jesus is the carpenter. The guy who is the suffering servant. The guy who said, I'm going to be executed. It's like, here we go. Right? It's like, exposed. I'll show you who I really am, guys. And in a moment, they see His glory. I believe He's fulfilling the promise of 1628 where He said, some of you aren't going to die until you're going to see the Son of Man coming. Coming in His kingdom. 
and they see the king for who he truly is. Peter reflected on this experience in 2 Peter in his epistle. Here's what he wrote about it. In verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were what? Eyewitnesses of His majesty. When did that happen, Peter? When we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. In a moment they see Jesus for who He is. And it's that moment where, remember, He just said, I'm going to be killed by all the leaders of Jerusalem leaders of the world, really, Rome. I'm going to be executed. And them thinking, oh my gosh, you're going to be the suffering servant? And he just declares in a moment, I got this. Don't think they're coming upon me and I can't do anything about it, Peter. Do you know who I am? Get up on this mountain. Let me show you. Right? This is who I am. I'm hiding it, man. I'm incognito. Because i got a different plan. I'm not going to explain every detail to you, Peter. You've got to realize who I am. And that will carry you through. Not what you understand. This is the second time the Father has spoken about Jesus in almost the same words. When He was baptized, when sinless Jesus was baptized for the remission of sins, right? He didn't do it for Himself. A voice was born and said, This is My Son in whom I'm well pleased. And he was revealed as really this suffering servant, but this time it's different. He's not being shown as the person who's going to suffer and die for sins. He's being shown as the victorious king. And that's the, the paradox of Jesus, right? He's the suffering king. He's the king who comes and suffers, but he is the king who is sitting on a throne when that suffering is over. Unlike Moses, right? When Moses went and talked with God, he would go out to a tent and he would meet God face to face and he would come back looking like one of those glow babies, right? They'd be like, oh, he had to have a veil over his face because he reflected God's glory. It's different with Jesus. He ain't reflecting nothing. He is transformed to reveal the glory of who he is. This is not just a reflection on his face. He's like, here's who I really truly am. I'm not some teacher exclusively and only. I'm not just a man. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm not just a magician. I am God incarnate. I am the Son of God in human flesh. Colossians 2.9, Paul wrote it this way, For in Him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, all that is God, dwells bodily. Or as Jesus says in John 14.9, Whoever seen Me has seen the Father. That's... If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, what does that really tell me? It tells us this. Jesus is not just God-like, right? God is Christ-like. Jesus is not just God-like. God is Christ-like. You want to see who God is. You want to know the full revelation of who God is is in His Son, revealed in Jesus Christ. And because of that, because God is Christ-like, our response to Him should be Isaiah-like. If you ever read in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is kind of put into a trance or, or brought into the throne room of God through a vision, 
sees the glory of God, his response is this. Woe is me, for I am lost. I have a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. He's just, woe is me, Lord. You are glorious. You are beautiful. And again, we ask ourselves, is that what we expect to see when we come on Sunday morning to meet Jesus? Do we expect to be awed by Him? To be blown away by who He is? What I think we do is this. We do what Peter does. And see what Peter does? Instead of sitting and beholding Jesus' glory, what does he do? He searches for a task. He goes, Jesus, you want me to build some tents? I'll build a tent. And he's really careful about his words, right? He's just been called Satan for some really rash words. Now he's like, um, Lord, it's, it's good that we're here. And if, if it's your will, if you think it's a good idea, I'll build three tents, right? And, he's, and God interrupts him, which I think is awesome. But like he's, I'll build, he's searching for something to do. And here's my, I'll, I'll admit my weakness, my problem. When I go before the Lord, I'm often thinking more about what I need to do than just sitting there. And just being awed by who he is and saying, that's enough. To sit in his presence. Peter's looking for something to do. I'll build something. Let me do something for you. Jesus like, I don't need you to do anything. I don't need you to do anything. I believe seeing Jesus will lead to enjoying Jesus, and enjoying Jesus will lead to loving Jesus. And when you love Jesus, guess what? You'll serve Him. We usually get that backwards. But I believe if we sit and we just see Jesus, we'll enjoy Him, and that enjoyment will be like, man, just love Jesus. And when you love Jesus, you'll serve Him. And you'll obey Him. Because you love Him. Not because you're fearful. You love Him. So first thing we should expect is to adore Jesus. That's where it all starts. Then it goes further. I don't think we should only expect to adore Jesus the King. We should expect to learn from Jesus. The voice that interrupts Peter, I love it. He says, when he still, as he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. See, before Peter can finish this sentence, the presence of the Father overshadows the mountain just as it did with Moses and similar to his baptism but different. He says, this is my son. But then he adds, listen to him. Now, Moses and Elijah are, are symbolic in many ways, and they represent what the Jewish and even the, the Scripture refers to uh, as the law and prophets. It would be representing all that God has said up to this point. Moses being the law, Elijah being representative of all the prophets. Now, Jesus has already spoken about both those things. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus says, Don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets, Moses and Elijah, I didn't come to abolish them. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then after his resurrection, when he's walking along a road to Emmaus, and he's walking with two disciples who are very despondent and, and sad about Jesus dying, and he walks and kind of hides himself so they don't know what he's taught, who he is. What it says in Luke 24, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, who takes the whole Testament, 
He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself, the Christ, and how He would suffer and rise again. So He says, all of this is, guess what? Pointing to Jesus. The Father's command is to listen to Jesus. In the presence of Moses and Elijah, He reveals several things that Jesus is not, oh, God 2.0. And that was wrathful God back here, and now we have a friendly, gentle God. No. He says it's the same God. There's a continuation of the Old Testament and a fulfillment, but there's also a change. The Father wants His church. And it's been interesting. There's a, been a movement lately that I think has been, it's kind of minimized the Trinity in the church, people talk less about the Father and less about the Holy Spirit. And you can tend to go, gosh, oh, it talks about Jesus so much. The Father tells us to. It doesn't mean we ignore and, and, and don't ever talk about the Father or the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. They all play a role. But it's interesting that the Holy Spirit is promised to come and to lead us into what Jesus taught us. And in the prayer of John 17, Jesus is devoting Himself to glorifying the Father, and the Father is devoting Himself to glorify the Son. So it's not one or the other, but clearly the Father says, I want you to revere Jesus more than any person, more than any organization, more than any cause. The voice doesn't say, which I always like to think about this, the voice doesn't say, hey, listen to me, or hey, listen to Jesus also, as if they have different things to say. Right? We think, well, you're going to listen to the Father too, right? Well, what makes you think that Jesus doesn't speak for the Father? Isn't it Jesus who said, I only speak what the Father has allowed me to speak? So isn't listening to Jesus actually listening to the Father? We're to listen to Jesus. And as a community, we're to listen to Jesus He's speaking to a community what I think is beautiful. He's not just speaking to Peter. He's speaking to Peter, James, and John. He's speaking to what becomes the leadership of the church. We are to listen to Jesus more than we listen to ourselves. Because you can self-talk your way away from God pretty easily. We are to listen to Jesus more than we listen to our culture. We are to listen to Jesus more than we listen to the law that has been fulfilled. I believe that's why Moses and the prophets are there, right? The law was given to, to in many ways, declare uh, God's holiness, and the prophets came to protect that holiness and that righteousness. And Jesus comes and says, I fulfilled it all. Without the gospel, without grace, all we have is condemnation. And the only thing that the law by itself can do is show us how sinful we are. But in this case, it's saying, look, the gospel is a fulfillment and is above the law. Romans 8, best place. You should memorize Romans chapter 8. Everyone should memorize Romans chapter 8. Here's the first couple of verses of it. And I'll preface it with this. It's where some people will say, like, well, we just want to ignore the law. The gospel of Jesus is to be placed above the law because the law is designed to point us to Jesus. Romans chapter 8 says this, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. 
He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What does that mean? It shows us that God did everything we couldn't do. He did it for us and He gives us to us. And as we listen to Jesus, that doesn't mean we become lawless. On the contrary, I believe the gospel of grace or the message of Christ doesn't just change our have-tos to I don't have to anymore. It transforms us from have to to really want to and get to. It becomes our desire because punishment has been removed. There's no more fear that God's going to reject us. We obey not to be accepted. We're accepted, but we obey joyfully. It is our aim to delight in our Father. He's no longer a boss and a cosmic killjoy that's keeping us from joy like the enemy would love us to believe. We see him a father who wants our best and loves us, and so we obey out of delight and joy because it delights me to delight in the Father and for him to delight in us. But the truth is this. Even when I listen to Jesus, I screw up. I fail. Maybe there's some others that fail too. I don't know. I've heard that. Even when you listen to Jesus, it's not a guarantee of perfection. This is what I love the last part of this passage, particularly verse 6. See, ironically, I think when we begin to kind of quiet the law and listen to Jesus, here's the rub. As you listen to Jesus, he calls us to live a life more demanding than the law. Did you know that? Remember the Sermon on the Mount? It says, well, you've, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm saying don't hate. I can handle not murder, but i got a lot of hate going on for a lot of people that are bugging me, right? He says, you've heard it said that don't commit adultery. I tell you not to lust because it's just like it. Oh, come on. He calls us to a life that's higher. It's greater. That's a standard you go, oh, man, I, I thought maybe I could make the law, but now, pff, no way. I can't do, love your enemies? You can't be serious. Forgive those who hurt you? No way. That's like, that's even beyond the law. Yeah. It's like as you listen to Jesus, people go like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to live and listen to Jesus and just like be gentle and loving to everybody. Like, do you realize the life he calls you to? He calls you to die. And so as you listen to Jesus, as you truly listen to Jesus, you begin to go, oh my goodness, I'm not going to make it. I think when you begin to listen to Jesus, you realize how short you really fall. Because when you have law, you can kind of play the game. I'm not as bad as that guy. I didn't do this. Verse 6 says, when the disciples, and this will be the last two verses actually I go over, when disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they said, listen to Jesus. And they were terrified. Perhaps because they remembered the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus came and touched them. Love this verse. Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one 
but Jesus only. See, as we gather on the mountain and prepare and expect to adore Jesus the King and listen to Jesus the Teacher, I think we it ends or maybe climaxes in resting in Jesus the Savior. Because if you just listen to Jesus the Teacher, guess what? It can actually be quite discouraging because he calls us to a life that's really hard and if if that's all there is, if Jesus is coming saying, oh, actually, this is the law, you got to hit that. Oh, but Jesus does much more, says much more. Jesus' response to his terrified disciples is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's the Son of God humbly emptying himself of all position, of all glory, of all power, and coming to dwell with men. Jesus didn't simply come down to glow and put on a show to impress his disciples. This is who I am, guys. Pretty rad, huh? What's in it? There's many ways he could have done that. This is the only moment he reveals his glory. The only moment. The rest of life, suffering. He also doesn't intend to scare us into obedience. Remember who I am! You better obey, I can zap you out of existence! Now, not what he's trying to do. Jesus comes down to take away our fear. He comes down to lift our eyes and enable us to stand so that we can endure and enjoy and obey. Matthew writes that when Jesus touches them, men who were told that you have to take up your cross, man, you have to suffer just like I am, he reaches down, he touches them, and he lifts their eyes, and what do they see? Only Jesus. All they see is just Jesus. They're reminding me of Hebrews 12, speaking about all kinds of faithful men in chapter 11 who died, who had lives that were glorious and who suffered. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we can see that Jesus did it, we can do it. Jesus endured the cross, entrusting himself to the Lord, believing that the joy set before him, he looked past what the suffering was going to be, the hardship it was going to be, and he saw the joy, and that's what drove him. And just to close us out, I know that many of us um, are tempted to argue, well, if I had an experience with Jesus on the mountain like that, I would obey and die for him too. I think you're wrong. But you know what Peter says? about this experience, this very experience. I'll read the rest of the passage that I began in Second Peter. In reflecting about that experience, here's what Peter says. Remember he said, we're on the mountain, we saw the majesty, we were eyewitnesses. And then he said, and we have, because he had the experience, we don't have that. 
But he says we have something better. He's like, we have the prophetic word. More fully, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing the first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God and were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Why bring that up? Peter argues that from what his own eyes saw, right? I know this. But he also says that we have something that we can trust even more than our senses, the Word of God. God has given us His Word, produced by the Holy Spirit to guide us in all of these things. See, the transfiguration didn't add something new. What the transfiguration did, this time on the mountain, it was merely confirmed the power that Scripture already had. Scripture had already declared this. It already confirmed this. And so Peter's saying, this amazing experience, you know where it led us to? The Word. We may not have a, a mountaintop experience with Jesus. It would be awesome if you did. But what we can do is go to the mountain every time through the Word. And until we behold His glory face to face, I believe Peter is telling us that we behold the glory of Jesus as powerfully as He did at the transfiguration through His Word. It's through the Word by the Spirit that we shall see and know why Jesus is so majestic and why we must worship Him. And it's through the Word by the Spirit that we shall hear Jesus and how we are to obey Him and how we are to follow Him. But more than anything, and I think the climax and the most important thing, the thing we celebrate at communion, is through the Word by the Spirit that we shall love Jesus and know what it means to actually rest in Him calls us to worship, calls us to obey, and then says, I'll be with you always. I'll do it. Lean on me. Cast your cares upon me. Learn from me. Walk with me. I got you. So as we come to the table this morning, for those who are believers, this is for you. The family meal that we take together and we declare together that we are broken, that we are foolish, that we are faithless, but God is not. And we come to the table worshiping all that God did to save us. And we come to the table knowing that not only have we been crucified with Christ, which this represents, we have been given new life in Him with the power to obey Him. And if we fail, this table reminds us to lean on Him. And if we succeed and we rock it in our walk, this table reminds us, remember why you're succeeding. It's Jesus in you. And so I invite you all, after we pray, to worship together and to remember where our salvation comes from. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your grace and Your love and Your patience. Lord, we are foolish, we confess. We speak rash words just like Your disciples did. We're captivated by sin just like Your disciples were. But we believe, just as Your disciples were transform from fools to faithful martyrs that You can transform us. And so, Lord, as, as we endeavor and desire to do that, I pray that we will come here and we will gather here and we will expect and prepare to meet Jesus face to face in all His glory, in all His beauty, in all His majesty, declaring that Jesus, the One who emptied Himself, the One who 
pursued us and sacrificed is great and glorious and good. And that, Father, that will motivate us to listen to Him, to obey Him. And as He calls us to things that are hard to do, that we will rest in His power to do it through us. It is in His name that we hope. It is in His name that we dare come before You. It is in His return that we pray for quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.